0: Today's study deals with the joy of fulfilled prophecy. Now you got to put on your thinking caps this morning because I'm going to be dealing with a lot of history which we don't normally delve into. But the history surrounds the church here. In particular, this text dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and all of those things. So you see in your first point in your bulletin outline, Jerusalem under siege. In this section of Luke 21, as well as in similar, similar selections in Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13, Jesus predicts the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And by coming, I do not mean a day yet future to us, but a day at that time which was future to his disciples the sack of Jerusalem has already occurred. From history, we know that there were a number of civil wars in Palestine that continually interrupted the plans of Roman expansion. Finally, Rome had had enough, and so in AD 63, they sent their general, Pompey, to crush the rebellion. Al-Maxi, a historian writing at znet.com states, after a three-month battle, Jerusalem fell and the Romans took control of Palestine. The Jews in Jerusalem were greatly distressed over the destruction done during the battle to capture the city. Pompey killed over 12,000 Jews when he entered Jerusalem. He also entered the Holy of Holies in the temple and committed other profane deeds, which offended the pious Jews. He did not destroy the temple, however, nor did he carry off any of its sacred objects as other conquerors had done in the past. The worship of God was allowed to continue and the Jews were allowed to remain relatively independent so long as they caused no disturbances and paid a yearly tribute to Rome. End quote. Now, the siege to which Jesus refers in our text, verse 20, comes later. It's not referring to this first destruction here. It comes later under Julius Caesar, when Julius Caesar killed Pompey, there were rivals for the throne of Rome, at the Battle of Pharsalus, in rivalry for who's going to sit on the throne of Rome. And to Peter, who had supported Pompey, of course Pompey's defeated, but he convinced Julius Caesar that he would be just as loyal to him as he had been to Pompey, and Julius Caesar bought that. Okay, okay. But one year later, Antipater died, and his son Herod, whom we know as Herod the Great, was appointed procurator of Judea. Three years later, in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar was assassinated by people in his own senate, and turmoil again erupted in the empire, and particularly in Palestine. Rivalry for headship over Rome consisted of three contenders, Cassius, Antony, and Octavian. Cassius was eliminated, eliminated early on as a contender for the throne, but then, for the next ten years, Antony and Octavian duped it out for preeminence over Rome. Antony was defeated at the Battle of Actium, leaving Octavian as the sole ruler of Rome. And Octavian changed his name to Augustus, which means the great. These guys didn't have a problem with ego, did they? You know, I am now Augustus. Because he had beaten Antony. Antony, you know, was involved with Cleopatra and that whole thing. Augustus means the great. Call me the great. Caesar the great. And he reigned until about 14 A.D. Jesus would have been a teenager under Augustus' rule in about 14 A.D. Under Herod the Great's rule in Palestine, insurrections again broke out. These Jews were contentious. Boy, they weren't going to just roll over and play dead with regard to Rome. So it fell into the hands of the rebels, Jerusalem did, and Herod had to recapture the city all over again, A.D. 37. And he did such a fine job in restoring order that Antony, he was supporting Antony at this time, Antony appointed him as king over all of Palestine. Now, that's something new that somebody would be appointed a king when we got Caesar sitting on the throne. Well, there wasn't, this was a time of rivalry between Antony and Octavian. Well, when Antony was defeated in the power struggle with Octavian, who became Augustus. Herod switched allegiances to Augustus, and Augustus bought it. So he maintained his leadership. Isn't this a strange thing, when you think about it? These guys support somebody, and then when that somebody is defeated by a rival, they say, ooh, I'm in trouble. So they switch allegiance, and they pull it off. You talk about politicians. Wow. Historian Al Maxley writes, Although much of Herod's reign was one of trouble and misery, not only for himself but also for the Jews, nevertheless, he did accomplish a great deal of good for the land of Palestine. Entire cities, which had been destroyed by war, were rebuilt. Herod also built several fortresses for protection against enemy attacks the most famous of which was Masada. I'm going to refer to that later. In the 18th year of his reign, in an effort to win the affection of the Jewish people, Herod began to work on enlarging and beautifying the temple. This task would take many years, and Herod would not live to see it completed. The work was still going on when Jesus visited it as a child, And the reference to the lengthy construction is found in John 2, verse 20, where the Jews said to Jesus, It has been 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Of course, he was talking about the resurrection of the temple of his body. Well, the work on it was not completed until A.D. 64, just six years before it would be destroyed. In 70 A.D. when General Titus came in and reduced it to rubble. Now all of this brings us then to Jesus' prediction in our text. Verse 20, Luke 20, 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Well, after Herod's death, his kingdom was divided by the emperor under the headship of Herod's three sons. That's the way it usually goes, you know. Royal line is established. If he has sons, the kingdom is passed on. Herod Archelaus, these are all Herod's, they're all in the Bible, but Herod Archelaus inherited Samaria, Judea, and northern Idumea. Herod Antipas got Galilee, that would be your northern parts, and Perea, and Herod Philip, the east side of Palestine, which would be on the other side of the Jordan River, all the way to Mount Hermon. Well, Herod Archelaus was the most wicked of these sons. And that is why Joseph and Mary, who had fled to Egypt to escape the baby slaughter of Herod the Great, decided to resettle in Galilee. Matthew 2, verse 22. When they heard that Archelaus had taken over dad's place, Herod the Great, they said, "Ah, we're not going to go there. We're going to go to some place where he doesn't have any authority. Again, the historian Al-Maxley writes, Archelaus married Glephira, the wife of his half-brother, divorcing his own wife in order to do so. This outraged the Jews. And when a rebellion broke out in Jerusalem during the Passover season, his troops killed over 3,000 Jews. That's how they handled rebellion. Hey, you don't come against Rome. I don't care what you think about my marital status. And when they came against him, and when they protested, he killed three thousand. His was a reign of terror. In the ninth month of his reign, a delegation of leading men from Judea and Samaria went to Rome to appeal to Augustus to have him removed. End of quote. So the Jews had had it up to here with Herod the Great. They had had it up to here with Archelaus, who was now ruling in Judea proper. And they send a delegation to Rome to appeal to Caesar, Augustus. Look, this guy is no good for us. What are you going to do about it? And guess what? Augustus complied. Archelaus was banished to Gaul. That's like saying somebody's going to be banished to Siberia. And Palestine, from that point on, was ruled by military governors, known as Roman procurators, who were directly accountable to Caesar, to Rome. First of these governors was Pontius Pilate. You see how all of this fits in, brethren, with the biblical history. Later came Felix. He's mentioned in Acts 23 verse 26. After Felix came Festus. He's mentioned in Acts 24 verse 27. So you begin uh, this whole succession of procurators or generals. They're military leaders who are given authority. The king business of the Herod family is dissolved. Now keep in mind that with every change in leadership in Palestine, the Jews were agitated to no end because their Roman conquerors would not and did not respect their monotheistic faith or the sanctuary of their worship services, the atoning sacrifices which they offered on the altars, their order of priests, the right of circumcision, and on and on and on. Rome would have nothing to do with any of that. It was and it is the proverbial clash between the secular and the religious. Between the godly and the profane. As far back as Pompey, before the Herods, when he entered Jerusalem, he killed 12,000 Jews and entered the Holy of Holies in the temple. So what we got there is a murderer and a Gentile going into the most holy place in the temple. And that surely irked the Jews. When Herod assumed power over Palestine, he erected a golden eagle, symbolic of Roman rule, over the temple gate. Years later, when Herod was dying, a group of 40 students repelled on ropes to the golden eagle and they chopped it off the wall with hatchets. Yay for them! All 40 of them were burned to death alive by Herod before he died. These kinds of events kept the pot seething and the hatred for Rome bubbling, as you can, you can expect. They, Like I said earlier, the Jews were not about to take this lying down. Just as an aside here, brethren, do we get as agitated and upset when our faith is attacked by blasphemers? By those that hate Christ and hate the gospel. I'm not saying grab your sword or grab your gun and go out there and start shooting people. I'm I'm not saying that at all. That would be against the principles of scripture. But I'm saying there ought to be a holy uh, anger. We ought to be upset and do what we can politically or otherwise to resist this kind of influx that takes place with secularism. Brings us to the second point in the outline, the armies of Titus. By the time of 66 AD, the Jews who before had had some financial means to support their families had been taxed into poverty by Herod for the renovation of the temple and by Rome in the form of tribute owed. Tax, tax, tax. Does that sound familiar? With regard to our society. They had had enough. And they were ready to become freedom fighters. So here's what happened. The temple authorities. The temple authorities. This is Jewish. The temple authorities among the Jews appointed generals. To set up the defense of the countryside. Josephus. He wasn't known as Josephus at the time. He was known as Joseph, son of Matthias. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was one of these generals. I learned some things this week, too. These Jewish generals set about attacking the Roman garrisons and they defeated them. And they closed all the seaport cities along the Mediterranean, if you know, Palestine's right on the eastern uh, shore of the, of the Mediterranean. And that's where Rome had set up its seaports. And they closed those seaport cities so that Rome would have difficulty to refurbish their garrisons. Well, Emperor Nero was in authority by this time, and he was enraged. So what did he do? He resurrected a retired general named Titus Flavius, also known as Vespasian, to restore order in Palestine. You know what you're doing. I'm bringing you out of retirement. Handle these pesky Jews. Well, he was also known as Titus but he had a son that he named Titus. and Titus entered the country with 35,000 Roman soldiers. That's five legions. And he proceeded from Galilee southward. The town defended by Joseph son of Matthias was captured. And Joseph son of Matthias was thrown into prison. His life was spared because he prophesied that Vespasian, this general, would become emperor of Rome. And sure enough, before he laid siege to Jerusalem, he learned that Emperor Nero had died and two rivals were duking it out for his throne. So guess what he did? Vespasian suspended... His assault on the Jews. He turned his attention to the civil war in Rome. And with the help of allies, he came out the victor and was crowned emperor. Think about the turn of events here at all. He's coming in as a general that's been pulled out of retirement. The emperor dies. He goes back and fights for that position and wins. Josephus, Joseph son of Matthias, was released from prison, granted Roman citizenship, and given the name Flavius Josephus, and that's how we know him. This is his history of the civil wars in Jerusalem against the Romans. He was a Jew one of those Jewish generals fighting against Rome. His city was conquered, thrown into prison, gave the prophecy that Vespasian would become emperor. When that happened, Vespasian released him from prison, changed his name, gave him a Roman name, gave him Roman citizenship and his history, as they say. It was written. It was all history from that point on. Well, with the government of Rome now established... Vespasian again turned his attention to the contentious Jews in Jerusalem. He sent his son, Titus, to complete its destruction. The city was surrounded. It was Passover season, so people were allowed into the city, but not out of the city. Why would they do that? Oh yeah, you can go in. Nobody coming out. It was to burden the city with all these people. Thousands of people coming in for Passover that they had to feed and house and and do all of those things. It's part of the siege strategy. But even so, 500 people a day were crucified outside the city wall of Jerusalem as a lesson to those inside. I'm coming to get you. And when I come to get you, it's going to be terrible. It was terrible. Over 1 million Jews were put to death in the siege. The temple was set on fire and utterly destroyed. 97,000 prisoners were taken back to Rome and forced to serve as gladiators or as workmen. It was this labor force of Jews, slave Jews, that built the Colosseum in Rome that would later become the execution ground for so many Christians. The gold and silver of the temple was stamped into Roman coins with the inscription, Judea Capta, Judea Defeated. So every time a person picked up one of those coins to use it to purchase things, they could read, ah yeah, Rome won, Judea was defeated. The sacred vessels, the table on which the bread of God's presence had been put, the menorah, the curtain, all the other objects that nobody except the high priest was allowed to see and use, they were all carried through the Roman streets in triumph. Everything was laid waste. And Jesus is predicting that in our text. That's the third point. The flight from Jerusalem. He had given. Jesus gave his disciples fair warning. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. You know, hello. Wake up. Why would they be surrounding Jerusalem? Why would they be mobilizing? Now that one happened in an instant. It takes time. Weeks to mobilize armies. But he says when you see that happen, you know desolation is coming. Remember that this was a monumental feat of war for Rome. Jerusalem, if you ever looked at any pictures of it, it's perched on a high hill. And then it's surrounded by higher walls. So in the scripture when you read, we're going up to Jerusalem, they're not talking about latitude. They're not talking about somebody south of Jerusalem geographically and you know, oh, we're gonna go north to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. They're talking about up to Jerusalem, that is geographically. If you lived in Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem, you would still speak about going up to Jerusalem because it's on this high hill. So this is a monumental feat here for Rome to come up against a city high on a hill, surrounded by walls, and to conquer it. Then remember that Vespasian halted his advance for a while so he could deal with the civil war in Rome. And so there was some time that passed along while the, inform, the disciples had been informed. It's kind of like the lull before the storm. Here's this guy, they, they knew he brought his armies in in Galilee, yes, just to the north of Jerusalem. Five legions come in, they're marching south. He stops them for a while. He goes back to Rome and he obtains the emperorship. But they you know, hello, light bulb, the armies are still there. They're here for a purpose, they're coming against us. And even so, Jesus stressed this urgency. Look at verse 21 of our text. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people they will fall by this sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verses 21 through 24. You go to Matthew's account and there's more detail. Matthew writes, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take something out of the house. Let no one who is in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Matthew 24 verses 15 through 20. So here Jesus alludes to a prophecy in Daniel's writings, which has been attached to the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who, in 168 BC before Christ, successfully defeated Jerusalem. See there's, all this stuff is historical, and Jerusalem's been attacked many times. Well, this Antiochus Epiphanes executed more than 80. Thousand men, women and children and sold 40,000 into slavery. And you can read about that war in the non-canonical book of Maccabees, Second Maccabees chapter five, records it for you. The holy place was robbed of its treasures. The temple was dedicated to Jupiter Olympus. Greek God, pagan God. The temple was defiled by offering a sow upon the altar and scattering its juice all over the sanctuary and the vessels. He substituted the Jewish feasts with the drunken revelry of Bacchelia, forcing the Jews to worship Bacchus, the Greek god of pleasure and wine. Getting drunk and lots of immorality. So this happened in 168. BC. And Jesus refers back to Daniel's prophecy. His allusion to that of Antiochus is his way of saying that Jerusalem under Titus will experience similar atrocities. Even Paul picks up on this as a theme predicted about the man of lawlessness who is to come in the last days, our day. And he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. Now his credentials will not be in your face, desecration of the holy, but oddly enough, an imitation and counterfeit of the holy. Different strategy. Paul writes, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 10. This, however, as we saw with Antiochus and later with Titus of Rome, will result in defeat for the enemies of God. Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And it's a reference to his second coming. Since Daniel's prophecy of Antiochus' defeat, and Jesus' prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem under Titus, since they have both come true, brethren... We have a very sure ground upon which to stand when Paul later speaks of the coming and the overthrow of the lawless one. That's the joy of fulfilled prophecy. We have a God who tells it true and it comes true. And so things that aren't yet here in terms of fulfillment are coming true, will come true. No doubt they will come true. Because these other things that were horrendous events. And people might have thought, what an idiot to prophesy something so terrible and so mind-boggling as the destruction of Jerusalem up on that hill. When those things came true, it should bolster us to believe in the word of God. Now that brings us then to the second point of the outline, the spiritual lessons. What are the spiritual lessons? Lessons of Jerusalem being destroyed. And in particular, the temple. Well, number one, it was God's marked end to the Jewish theocracy. To the old covenant uh, way of faith. Apostle John, writing of Jesus' first coming, said, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. John 1, verse 9 through 11. Came to his Jewish people, and they rejected him. Peter, preaching to the crowd at Jerusalem at the Passover following Jesus' crucifixion, called on them Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me, from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant made God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through you, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And God raised up his servant. He sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Acts 3, 19-26. So when Christ came, God sent him first to the Jewish people. But as you know, there was no warm reception awaiting Jesus and his teaching when he came on the scene. It was prophesied by Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him. Isaiah 53, verse 3. John the Baptist said, The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Father loves the son and has was pleased has has placed excuse me has placed everything in his hands whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for god's wrath remains on him john 3 verses 31 through 36 one of the sermons that we have of john the baptist in the bible for you to read the pharisees hated jesus the scribes hated jesus the priests hated Jesus. They accused him of being of the devil. Let me read it. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. How stupid is that? Mark 3 verse 22. But that's what they said of Jesus. And when they even saw His mighty miracles that Jesus performed. The healing of the man with a withered hand. We read, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Matthew 12 verse 14. They connived, they lied, they communed in clandestine meetings until their plan was all worked out. And then they paid Judas to reveal the time and location where Jesus could be taken into captivity into custody now the common people may i say even the riffraff like prostitutes and thieves they responded to right to jesus he gave them a message of hope and redemption and they ate it up but not those men entrenched In the Jewish faith. That is the faith as they saw it to be. Jesus said they are blind guides. Who's going to follow a blind guide? When I read that text I thought, well yeah, go take a tour of the Grand Canyon. And I'm going to hire me a blind guide. (laughs) And Jesus says, yeah, they all end up in the pit in the cavern. He went on to say, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, verses 6 through 9. So you see what's going on here. With the religious leaders, Jesus threw a monkey wrench into their traditions. They had everything mapped out for people. Rules and regulations. A lot of them not even from the Old Testament law. Just things they invented. Like the Sabbath day journey. You can go so many feet. But not beyond that. If you go beyond that, it's work. You're breaking the Sabbath. You won't find anything in the law of God about that. They invented that. This was not the only problem, however. So long as the temple of Herod stood, the Jewish faith continued with its animal sacrifices, its priestly intercessions, its festival observances, the washings, the cleansings, the circumcision, all of those things. All with the belief that these ceremonies, because they were prescribed by God, were the real deal. The way to salvation. He took the word of God Yeah, he did prescribe the ceremonies, but they took the word of God and they spinned it. They gave it a spin. They never did catch on to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? Wouldn't wouldn't the animal sacrifices have ended if they perfected people, if there was real forgiveness on that basis? He goes on. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, and with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Hebrews 10, verse 6 verses. See, something greater was coming. The Jews didn't get it. That greater something was the Messiah who would grant, would would forfeit his life as the ultimate sacrifice. Christ was incarnated into a body so that he could become, in John's words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1 verse 29. Or again from the writer of Hebrews, by one sacrifice Namely himself. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. See, not a reminder now. Every time an animal was being sacrificed. But their sins I will remember no more. He goes on. And where these have been forgiven. If your sins are forgiven. There's no longer any sacrifice for sin. That is to say the animal sacrifices are revoked. They're not around anymore. Therefore brothers. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, namely Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 14 through 23. That's what all the shadow of the Old Testament law was foretelling. The reality isn't here yet. It's not here yet. It's not here yet. It's not here yet. It's coming. It's coming. It's in my son, Jesus. He came, and yet he was rejected by His people. So, one day as Jesus was leaving the temple, I'm reading scripture. One day as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. See, even the disciples could be impressed, you know, with the achievements of men. Here's Jesus' response Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus, I say unto you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Mark 13, verse 1 and 2. Luke's account words it this way. As he approached And the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because, here it is, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. Wow, that's a lot of detail there. That's exactly what Rome did. They built a siege ramp. Remember I said, Jerusalem's high on a hill. It's got a wall built around it on top of that. Romans said, no problem. They built a ramp on the road going up to the city and moved their forces that way. And so when Titus laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70 and invaded the city and the Temple Mount with five Roman legions, this prophecy, was fulfilled. And then the second spiritual lesson is this. To those who have been given much, all the more will be required. There's no escape from the judgment of God. None. Verse 22, For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. It's going to go down this way because this is the time of God's punishment. When the city of Jerusalem came under attack, some people fled to the heights of Masada. The word Masada in Hebrew means help. It was a fortress city, a palace built on top of a rock plateau by Herod as one of his escape places that he would go to if he were under attack. Huge plateau on top of a rock. 1,300 feet above the Jordan Valley overlooking the Dead Sea on the east side. On the west side, 375 feet. That's still pretty tall. and when they were up there at masada they thought it impregnable because there was only one way up and one way down it was a little footpath well masada had a water system unique cisterns that they built it had barracks an armory caverns to store food it was all there it's like a little fortress some of those fleeing from jerusalem Fled to Masada. Certainly, they surmise Rome will not bother us here. Be too hard for them to even bother. Well, Jerusalem fell under Titus in A.D. seventy, and four years later, a Roman procurator by the name of Silva, S-I-L-V-A, built a siege ramp using the 10th legion and Jewish prisoners, and he built a siege ramp up the little path going to Masada. And he stormed Masada with 15,000 Roman soldiers and Jewish prisoners. And what he found was all 960 residents had committed a mass suicide rather than fall into the hands of Rome. Eli who writes in the book of Job is not the one who says to kings you are worthless and to nobles you are wicked who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor for they are all the works of his hands. They die in an instant in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand his eyes are on the ways of men he sees their every step there is no dark place no deep shadow where evildoers can hide God has no need to examine men further that they should come before him for judgment without inquiry he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness, where everyone can see them. Masada, the heights you see again. Because, here's the reason, they turned from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. Brethren, I've got to tell you, that's why judgment comes upon any people. The battle's in the heavenlies. It has to do with God. And that's from Job 34 verses 18 through 27. Jesus put it this way: "For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked." Luke 12, verse 48. We've been given a tremendous heritage. We've got not only the old covenant and the scriptures of that era, but the new covenant and the teachings of Christ and the work of Christ. We need to be about the work of living out our Christianity in practical ways. Not playing church. Not dabbling in spiritual things, but immersing ourselves in those things. Because, as we have been seeing historically this morning, anytime God's people move away from following Him and refusing to listen to Him, He's not above bringing punishment upon them. But if we're faithful to Him, He brings punishment on nations who are on our case, not upon His people. You want to live a happy and prosperous life, life, then you want to lead a life that's glorifying to God. And what glorifies Him is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You won't be playing at this. You'll be immersed in my teaching. You will be following me. So here we have a wonderful prophecy. It's the joy of fulfilled prophecy. That Jesus gives us. But there are yet some things that are they're coming. Some other prophecies that have been made. They're not fulfilled yet. What do we do about them? We wait patiently in anticipation for. And we live in light of the fact that God will fulfill His word. Are you ready to meet God? That's a good question to ask yourself. Eli who says, there's no place you're going to hide from Him. No little, you know, even Masada, you know, with its fortress. Even Jerusalem with its big walls. No place he'll come and get you. It's a terrible thing, says the writer of Hebrews, to fall into the hands of an angry God. said, so I thought God was love. He is, if you obey Him, if you reciprocate, if you receive Him. But if you treat his son with the same scorn that the Jewish leaders did in the day of his sojourn here, if you treat his son in that same way, you get the same result. May the Lord grant you his faith and repentance. Lord, bless us. Today, in the next few minutes, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and we're going to remember what it cost God to redeem his people. It wasn't all those animal sacrifices of the old covenant. It wasn't the ceremonial washings. It wasn't the rite of circumcision or any other rite. Like in our day, baptism. It wasn't any of those things that saved people. It's the blood of Jesus Christ and that alone. And We must trust Him and Him alone. And we don't even have that faith. So Lord, what we're doing right now in prayer is to ask you to grant us the faith we don't have and the repentance we don't want to turn away from our sins that you might find us and bring us into a right and godly and holy relationship with you will you do that for us Lord because if you don't then the only thing that awaits us is destruction And I would not wish that. Lord, I would not pray that on any people. Lord, grant us your mercy. And boy, that's what we need. Your mercy, your grace. Amen.